We focused a lot on faculty switching modalities during the pandemic, but even experienced online instructors have faced new challenges redesigning their courses to work for students with limited computer technology, network access, and quiet study environment. In this episode, we discuss how universal design principles can be used to provide learning equity and human connections in our online classes. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Kevin Kelly and Todd Zakrajek. Kevin works with colleges and universities as an educational consultant and teaches as a faculty member in education at San Francisco State University. Todd is an associate research professor and associate director of fellowship programs in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Todd is also co-author of Dynamic Lecturing that we've discussed on earlier podcast episodes. Kevin and Todd are the authors of Advancing Online Teaching, Creating Equity-Based Digital Learning Environments, recently published by Stylus Publishing. Welcome, Todd and Kevin. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Our teas today are... I'm drinking Irish breakfast tea with honey from our backyard beehive. Can't get any more fresh than that. Nope. Well, I just finished hibiscus tea, but now I have my big old bottle of water to get me through this next round. Excellent. And I have Christmas tea. And I have ginger tea. We've invited you here today to discuss advancing online teaching. Could you tell us a little bit about how this very timely book came about? Well, Todd and I have known each other for years and years, and it just so happened that one day he was telling me about a series of books that he's created, and he invited me to work with him on a book about online teaching, and we'll get into more about how that evolved, but Todd, maybe you can fill in the gaps in my memory there. No, this is perfect, and you know, I take credit where credit is due. Sometimes you just get really, really lucky, and Kevin and I this round got really lucky in a way. I wanted to mention the fact that we've actually been working on this book for about two years. This isn't a situation where suddenly everything went to emergency remote teaching and we threw a book together. We started about two years ago working on this. We were both massively busy folks and so kind of kept picking away at it and running back and forth with edits and kind of kept working on it and working on it. And then it was about December of last year, we talked about it and said, let's just get this thing done. Put some time aside and just crank away at it. And it was about six weeks later that everything started to go sideways on teaching. And so then we talked it over and really focused hard. And within about three months, I guess, got it done because it takes about six months in production. What I mean by lucky is we had enough of it as a framework that had been years of work that we could then dump it into something that we could get out very quickly and at a time that I think is going to be real helpful. One of the things I really like about your book is it's focused from the ground up on inclusion, equity, and the use of universal design for learning. Could you talk about why you chose those as the foundation of course design? We wanted this book to be different in a few ways. Many of the books out there about online teaching focus either on the technology side, what buttons do you click to make a discussion forum take shape or what have you. And some of them will focus on the student side. How do you actually facilitate those discussions? 
But with work that both Todd and I have been doing in different circles, we decided that we wanted there to be an underpinning, if you will, of these different concepts so that they would be infused in everything people do, not just a tack on at the end, the way you might find in a college of education. Oh, here's a class on how to make your courses more multicultural instead of infusing that into every aspect of every course. We kind of viewed it like when you go to the eye doctor and they put one lens down and they say, are you clearer or fuzzier now? And now we have these three lenses. You characterize it as inclusion, learning, equity, and universal design for learning. But we frame it as universal design for learning, learning, equity, and human connection, which is a little bit broader than inclusion. But it was really important to us to really think about, hey, there's a human at the other end of that internet connection when you're having a teaching and learning experience, and we don't want to lose sight of that. What do you think, Todd? I think that's a really good point. And I think the biggest one still is that concept of coming back over and over again to remember the human in the exchange. It's really easy to post things out there and open quizzes and do all those things and forget the fact that when you open the quiz, the student who might be taking the quiz may be in a car in a McDonald's parking lot because it's the only place they can get internet. So we really wanted to hit that over and over again. I really appreciated, too, the extensive coverage on accessibility and things as well as part of that discussion, which sometimes gets overlooked, which is really unfortunate. Right. And we also wanted to make sure that accessibility wasn't the only frame through which to view universal design for learning. Often many people think about it that way, but we think about, hey, these are accommodations for students with busy lives. These are accommodations for students who may speak English as a non-native speaker. These are accommodations for people who are parents and juggling one device amongst themselves and other people in the house just trying to get work done and survive. That's how we did a lot of the theme. And it comes up over and over again. You don't design something so that you provide an opportunity for a person who has some kind of challenge. You design so that that challenge doesn't matter anymore. So if a person does take a little bit more time to cognitively process, you could certainly make extra time for that person or you create an exam with no time limit. And then it's no longer an issue. And so Kevin was phenomenal at finding a lot of different ways of, again, constructing the learning environment and online situation so that challenges don't matter anymore to the greatest extent possible. Many of the earlier books focused on an ideal condition where students working remotely were students who had good equipment, good connections, and plenty of time to arrange for this. But that's not the student body, I think, that we're generally seeing. Even without the pandemic, we see increasing diversity in the students and the time commitments and the challenges they're facing while they're enrolled in college. So I think that focus is really good. I think that's a really, really important point is in the past, Students who are in online classes chose to be in online classes, and there are certain types of students. My daughter is one of them. She does much better in an online course than she does a face-to-face course. She's got a lot of learning challenges, and it just works better for her. But what we found with emergency remote teaching about nine, ten months ago is that everybody, faculty and students who had no interest in being in online environments were all there, which means there was a tremendous mismatch. So the other things we're really working on with the book is if you find yourself in that mismatch, how can you match it up a little better? Can you talk a little bit about ways to overcome some of the racial and ethnic achievement gaps that we see online and some of these other maybe economic issues or just experience differences between students who have a lot of experience online versus students who are new to online? Sure. And I would characterize the equity-based gaps that we see, and often we hear them referred to in reports as achievement gaps, but the literature now encourages us to use words like education debt, so it's not on the doorstep of the student, but are we making student-ready colleges as opposed to college-ready students? 
And so one of the groups I mentioned in the book, Peralta Community College District, I've got six years of data. I've been looking at their work with students of all varieties. And the only data you can really get in a disaggregated form is for ethnicity because it's in the student information system, the database that has characteristics about the students. But the fields for first-generation student, the fields for veterans, the fields for students with disabilities sometimes aren't filled in at all. So you won't be able to tell to the same extent that there are either biases, assumptions, or institutional barriers that negatively impact students' motivation, opportunities, or achievement. So when we get to different things that work for different groups of people, universal design for learning really helps because it allows us to construct multiple pathways for people to succeed. And those multiple pathways may need to take into account that some students are interdependent learners as opposed to independent learners. They grew up in a culture where everybody's sitting around the table and they're learning as a group as opposed to individually off on your own reading a piece of text and answering questions about it later. And so to create opportunities for students to learn interdependently with small group projects or discussions gives those students who come from, whether it be their family or their identity, their culture, gives them opportunities to succeed in ways that we may be not fostering with highly independent, self-directed learning activities that we commonly see in online courses. I wanted to mention the fact that what Kevin just pointed out is phenomenal in terms of making sure that we're kind of helping create good learning opportunities for students. But a lot of times people will make that mistake of thinking what we're talking about here is meshing and learning styles. And you have to be very careful because the literature is very clear on learning styles. It's one of the trickiest things to debunk out there. We're not talking about teaching to a given learning style. We're talking about a situation that if a student is in an environment, for instance, where they're low bandwidth, then, you know, watching videos is going to be really hard. Text-based material will be a whole lot better. If you've got a student who's an incredible writer, but they're extremely shy, then asking them to create a video might be really hard for that person, but creating a paper is not. So it's helping to match the types of preferences and abilities students have, not teaching to that learning style. So I just want to make sure there was no misunderstanding there. What you said, Todd, just made me think of some of the research that we've been looking at to build the Peralta Equity Rubric. I'll come back to that in a second. But there's research that shows that African-American and Black students, if they don't see themselves in the course materials, are less motivated. So back to Rebecca's earlier question about what can we do, we can make sure that the images and media that we use to represent the content and topics in our courses are also reflective of the students in our classroom, whether that classroom be face-to-face, hybrid, or fully online. And so those types of strategies extend beyond just what is the content, but how are we presenting it as well? One thing that struck me with Todd's comment is that it may be the case that someone is in an environment where writing is easier for them or more natural, while video might not be. But for a student who is interacting with a course primarily through a smartphone, it's quite possible that the video may be the easier form of representing their knowledge rather than trying to type a paper on a smartphone. Correct. And one strategy that I've started using in my own class is for students who may not have access to a device. I had a student who first made me aware of this challenge who was living in his car. 
And so he didn't have access to a computer on a regular basis unless he went to the 24-7 lab. So he started using Google Docs, and then I told him about Dragon app so that he could do voice to text. And then I got smart enough. (laughs) Somebody told me about Google Voice, which is a free phone number that students can leave a voicemail message. And so now that student can just write with a pen and paper, not worry about typing it at all, and then read it as a voicemail message, just like a book on tape. I can still grade it with the same rubric, but that student has fewer barriers to reach the particular goal with respect to that assignment. You mentioned the equity rubric that you developed at Peralta Colleges. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? The short version of the story is that they were moving from one learning management system to another, from Moodle to Canvas. And at the same time, they decided they were going to write their first ever distance education plan. And based on some data that one of the team members had identified during her sabbatical, when you look at the average between all students in face-to-face courses and online courses, that average of retention and success kept shrinking so that students in online courses were catching up. But when you disaggregate that data by ethnicity, you see that Asian students and white students are well above the average and Black African-American students, Latinx, Hispanic students were below. And so we saw that we couldn't just think about this in one way. And we decided in that distance education plan they wrote for the district that they wanted the two core values driving the plan to be the learners themselves and equity. And so we didn't want it just to be a document sitting on a shelf collecting dust. And so we started looking at how do you operationalize helping faculty members infuse learning equity into their courses. We went out on the web and couldn't find anything. The closest thing we could find was the University of Southern California has the Center for Urban Education, and they have five principles about equity by design. But that wasn't very practical for a teacher learning how to infuse equity. So we just went out, looked at all the research that either showed an equity-based gap that negatively impacted students' performance or an equity-based intervention that positively impacted students' performance. And those research efforts led to eight criteria that we wove into this rubric. And now we've been using it to train faculty I'm using it in my own course, and it's been exciting to see how the whole district is responding. It's gone from an equity rubric to an equity initiative over time. Is that something you share publicly? It is. Yes. If you go to the Peralta website, and we'll make sure you have the link for your show notes, but the rubric itself is a Creative Commons document. The training, which is on a new version we're going to launch in just a couple of weeks, we're putting in the Canvas Commons for free. There's a bibliography that's quasi-annotated that shows the literature pertaining to each rubric criterion and a document that explains some of the core concepts. And some of my work involves taking that rubric and turning it into a framework. And I like to see it, if, if you're familiar with Photoshop or any tool where you have layers on top of layers, the Universal Design for Learning Matrix is a grid three by three that helps you identify the checkpoints for integrating UDL principles into your course. And so I thought it would be a nice add-on. It's not the same as it's a new set of ideas for faculty to start weaving in equity principles. So for example, in Universal Design for Learning, we think about different ways of presenting content based on the format, audio and text or video and text. And then with learning equity, you think about how do we present multiple perspectives on that so that we have different ages and ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures and identities sharing their ideas on the same topic. And from there, we've taken it forward and built it out into a core part of the book. It's a much needed thing. 
grateful that you guys worked on that. I know it's something that in doing a lot of accessibility-related work and UDL work with our faculty and trying to bring in equity more holistically, it's challenging because it's all these disparate resources and trying to make all the connections. It's nice to have them all in one place. Well, I have to say one of the things that led to the success of this project was the fact that we had such a diverse group working on it. We had people from all walks of life, students, staff, faculty, and it's one of the things I'm most proud of is the work I've been doing with that community college district. Changing the topic just a little bit, you advocate a backwards design process, as many people do, but you also emphasize the importance of creating learning objectives at the level of course modules as well as at the level of the course, and also making those explicit not just in the syllabus, but also in the course module. Could you talk a little bit about why that's important? I constantly refer back to what I call the psychology of the progress bar. And so if you're familiar with progress bars, we as humans are not satisfied or motivated until it's 75 to 80% complete. So when you have for every course that you're taking, and imagine a student with a normal load is taking four or five courses, let's say you have an average five to 10 learning outcomes at the course level, that's potentially 40 to 50 learning outcomes or progress bars that you're trying to measure your progress over the course of 17 weeks. So that means you're waiting until week 12 of any semester to know how you feel about how you're doing in a course. So the idea behind having module level learning outcomes means that you're breaking things into small chunks students can see that they've reached those outcomes right away. They dovetail or fall under the umbrella of those larger course level outcomes, but provide checkpoints along the way for students to tell how they're doing and stay motivated. Again, that motivation for persistence and success are key factors in helping our students in these online courses. And then obviously, Todd brought a whole lot to that conversation because he knew just on the back of his head, the entire history of the term learning outcome and why we use that instead of the word objective in the book. Todd, what do you think? I'll just mention this quickly. Is I think it's important for the book because it seems like folks just love to argue about whether you're really looking at outcomes or objectives. And goals, we totally get. Everybody sees those as being separate, but outcomes versus objectives. So we kind of outline in the book the different ways that people have actually defined those terms. But one of the cool things about this is it was back around 1962 that a book was written about objectives. It goes back to the 1800s. But in 62, there was a specific book that was written that says, looking very, very carefully, what is the behavior that's being done? How's it being done? What's the criteria for success? And we should be able to document those things so that we can objectively look and whether or not a person has achieved this. Then in about the late 80s, early 90s, the outcome-based education came along, and the big push was from objectives to outcomes, with the idea being that if we're going to define the outcomes of something, we should be able to identify what is the behavior, what's the criteria for success, and how they go about doing it. And then they cited the same research from the 1960s. So we got two or three pages in the book of the folks who say, oh, no, 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 it's not objectives, it's outcomes. They say, where do you think that came from? So at this level, and we're not trying to be rude about it, but it really doesn't matter. If you're not writing a thesis on this, what's important is that you can write a statement that says, by the end of this unit, by the end of this class, by the end of this whole section, a student should be able to or will be able to. And so that's what we really went for. But kind of waiting for the feedback, the book's brand new out right now, of waiting for the hardcore education folks to kind of explain that we got outcomes and objectives wrong. 
I gave a workshop on this topic in June for people preparing courses for the fall, and that was something that people from our education faculty were raising, saying, well, are these really objectives or are they outcomes? And my point was, it doesn't really matter. These are the things we want students to be able to do, and let's just work on helping them get to that point, because both terms are used generally interchangeably from what I've seen. Yeah, totally. And in describing them, you do use the SMART acronym. One issue I've run into is that there's many different variants of that acronym, but you adopt one that's actually pretty much the same one we had used here on our campus. Could you describe that SMART acronym? And it's kind of going to come back to the same thing you were talking about for outcomes versus objectives. For a SMART outcome, it's, it's very important that it be specific, that it be measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. Sometimes people change realistic for reachable. And so these words will bounce around a little bit. But I think what's important, it's almost drawn this analogy to Bloom's taxonomy. People get so hung up on Bloom's taxonomy to say, is this knowledge or is this understanding? You know, it's foundational. If it's foundational, I'm good with that. There's a difference between knowledge and understanding versus application versus synthesis. On a smart outcome, there's a difference between writing an outcome that's just not reachable, it's not timely, it's not measurable. Those are problems. So again, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you got something that's specific and measurable and probably reasonable, those are the big ones, but that's what we're really after. I love the emphasis on chunking things into small pieces to manage cognitive load, not only of our students, but also of the faculty member teaching the class. Because just like students who may have those 50 outcomes they're trying to head for, faculty are also trying to manage that and keep track of that for their students as well. So I like the idea of the cognitive load management for everybody involved in the learning process and really keeping it organized which is a key thing for any sort of learning design to make sure that people know how to move forward. Well, yeah, I'm going to say that I think probably one of the most important aspects of creating any kind of learning environment for your students is it comes down to cognitive load. I mean, it really is because at any given moment, if you have too much to do, for anybody out there who doesn't know what cognitive load is, think about like the expressway. And so you got information coming in. If I'm looking over and I see somebody walking by and I just watch them for a minute and see what their outfit looks like, that's one thing I can do. If a friend is talking to me, I can listen to the friend. If they're talking to me in the car while the radio is on and then it starts to sleet outside, I'm thinking, you know what? Trying to keep the car on the road, listen to somebody talking and having the radio is too much. And so it's just too much material coming through at once. And it's kind of like when the expressway has too many cars coming in at once and everything comes to a grinding halt. So what we have to be really careful of is that the more you do something, the easier it becomes. And the more you have frameworks for doing things, the more easily you can do it. So as we build these kind of structures, students can process a lot more information, but that's the cognitive load. And everybody has that feeling of sitting down to read something and getting about two paragraphs in and saying, yeah, not now. I just can't do this right now. That's cognitive load. And we do it all the time. The most important thing to keep in mind is if you're an expert at something, the process is very easy because it's repetitious, but your students are novice. So they're going to face a lot higher cognitive load. So the thing that you think, oh, this is easy, they're holding on by their fingertips. So being mindful of that cognitive load, I think, is really important from work of Sweller in the 1980s. And just to build on that and to go back to Rebecca's concept about the chunking and how important that is, it also serves today's students. So recently I was a moderator of a student panel at a conference and we had in the same panel 
a working mother. She was a single mother of two kids and in her 30s. And she said, sometimes I'm just trying to get the work done. I'm not aiming for the A, even though I would love an A. I'm just trying to get through this credential so I can get a degree and get upward mobility socially and socioeconomically. And so thinking about chunking as a universal design for learning concept where students can track their progress when they're having to bounce between different priorities, academics, work life, family obligations, this makes it streamlined pathway using Todd's expressway. We're creating a carpool lane for busy people. And it also matches with your discussion earlier of the checklist type idea that when students are given a project, say, write a paper by the last day of the term, it's really easy to procrastinate. And then quite often when people did that, it became overwhelming and it just never got done. By breaking it up into small chunks, you're keeping the cognitive load lower on each chunk, but you're also dealing with those human tendencies to procrastination and so forth to make it easier for people to keep the work manageable, to stay on track and not to put things off because they've got many other things that in the moment seem more pressing than something due a month later or two months later. Yeah, and John, you brought up something that's hugely important there, that so much of this stuff is interwoven. And I think it's hard for a lot of folks to see all of the different connections that are out there. But if you do a project, just like you just said, that's due at the end of the semester, students wait till the last minute because they will. As a faculty member, I've had reports for provosts that I've waited until the last minute to do. But that creates the high pressure. Cognitive load goes up. I start thinking I can't do it. Once I start thinking I can't do it, now I've got to pass this class. And so I start looking out online. Maybe there's a paper I could just buy. So suddenly it becomes an integrity issue. And so a lot of times when you look at the research on students who will do unethical things or cheating in the classroom, it's almost always based on pressure. People don't cheat on things that they don't feel pressure about. So when you have all these checklists that Kevin's pointed out, to the semester, you keep the cognitive load down, you keep the pressure down, then the need to cheat, so to speak, you take that away. So there are really things that we can do to create a better environment for the students that don't entice them into these unethical behaviors. Well, and one strategy that we put in the book is to not only provide the due dates, but provide start dates. And when you break up a project into chunks, you're going to have a first draft, you're going to have a feedback from a peer and have those all lined up so that students see it's not just one thing at the end of the term and they'll just wait until the last day, but instead, oh, I need to start my draft because I need to turn that in. Even if you're not going to do a whole lot with it as the instructor, but you're going to provide opportunities for students to interact with one another, to get feedback about their work before they turn it in, all those things are important. I've gone to the extent where I have students take a snapshot either digitally on their computer or with a phone picture if they have a paper-based calendar and show that they've allotted the correct amount of time each week for my class. And I give them, if they want, the ability to download or use an online to-do list that basically sends them reminders to start and finish things up. That feedback that they're receiving all the way through also reduces the ability to engage in academic dishonesty. And it reduces the benefits of it because none of the tasks are unmanageable. It works a lot of ways. I really appreciated all of the equity framework built into your book, but I have to admit, the chapter I went to first was managing your workload when teaching online. And I think maybe a lot of faculty might switch to that immediately right now in this moment in time. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies to reduce workload for faculty as well? Sure. I'll start, but I know Todd has lots of ideas to jump in. So a couple things. One, and we've referred to this before, not in this interview, but 
Tom Tobin has a book with Kirsten Bailing about universal design for learning. And in it, they propose this plus one strategy. Just think about one thing that you can do. So while we present a lot of ideas in the book, it's chock full of ideas. We recognize it. Unless you're going to do a full course for design over a summer or something like that, you really are going to find that the maximum strategy that will help the most students at that particular time. And so when you're talking about workload, part of it is parsing out the work of modifying your course. The other is thinking about strategies that will help you maybe be more equitable in how you reply to students in a discussion forum. There's research that shows that in that particular study by Stanford, 94% of the instructors replied first and sometimes only to names that look like white male names. So a strategy might be to create a spreadsheet showing that you have responded to all the students equally throughout the semester just tracking your own progress until they have tools like that in the learning management system we have to do it ourselves that increases the workload in some respects but also decreases the workload in terms of well i know that i've talked to todd three times already this semester but i haven't answered rebecca once if i'm worried about whether or not rebecca is going to stay in the class the way to demotivate a student is to give them no feedback whatsoever. So that increases our workload when we get those administrative calls from our department chairs or associate deans saying, hey, your DFW rate's really high. So just thinking about different things that you can do over time and also ways of working with colleagues. If you're teaching a class that has more than one section, you might be able to strategize who's going to do what this week, the ability to leverage open educational resources so you don't have to create something from scratch, but maybe modify it to meet your needs. There's all these different ways that you could manage your workload in the online course development and also the course facilitation. The other thing I would add to that is I think it's really important. Everybody's in firefighter mode, especially right now. You're just trying to get tomorrow is all you're trying to do. But I can remember being a faculty member about 35 years ago. I was kind of in that same framework, too. I know that now is tremendously just pressure for everybody. But, you know, last year wasn't just easy and three years ago wasn't simple. So we're always in this field where because there's an unlimited number of things we can do, and if we care about our students and we're pretty bright and keep trying to do new things, we're always kind of overworked. So I think this is no different than a lot of other times. You got to take stock of where you're at and what you can do. And I think budgeting a little bit of time, even every week, just for 20, 30 minutes, and specifically say to yourself, low-hanging fruit stuff, what could I do that would actually cut down some of unnecessary work that I'm doing right now and not decrease the learning for my students? I could take a thing out here and they're still going to learn just as much. Or what's something that I could add that after a very short period of time, the cognitive load wouldn't be bad because it might take me a couple times to figure it out. But once I got it figured out, then I can do something that takes very little time and has a lot more growth for my students. And so just taking stock once in a while, because I will tell you that I remember when Excel came out, so when Excel came out, a friend of mine said, you got to get your grade book into Excel. And for anybody who's listening that's old enough to remember carrying around the green book, the little green book that we all wrote of all our notes was, I had five exams where I dropped the lowest exam, and I was doing my class with 600 students in those green books. And it took me two years before I finally tried Excel because I was too busy to try it. So my framework now is to say, what if I had budgeted 30 minutes to try that? I think in the end, it finally only took me about 30 minutes to an hour to actually run an Excel, but I never took the time. So what we're advocating for is as busy as you are, take just a few minutes to just say, if I jump off the treadmill, what could I do that would take less time? This is going to date me a little bit, but I only used one of those little green books back in 1980 and 81. And then I picked up a Time Sinclair computer, one of those early things. 
And I wrote a Braidbook program and I was using that up until the time I got a spreadsheet. I think Lotus 123 was the first one I used and then Excel after that and then the gradebook in the LMS. I hated doing all that by hand, so I've always tried to automate it. Before we move on, you know, I do want to point out just for nostalgia that there was nothing in society more powerful than that little green gradebook because anybody in higher education had seen that book before. And I can remember my sister got in a car accident and the surgeons would come in, different people would come in and they were very dismissive of us, almost all of us, but I was grading one time and one of them came in and saw that book and stopped and says, what do you teach? And then we got into this really nice conversation and it suddenly occurred to me, even the physicians fear the green book. One of the things you emphasize throughout your book is building human connections in online courses. Could you talk a little bit about some strategies that we can use to do that effectively? So first is being aware of opportunities where students can interact with one another or interact with you, the instructor. And so that awareness then extends to, okay, we're going to build it into an assignment, but in a way that helps students understand that that's part of what you want to achieve. And so we often look at instructions for, let's say, a discussion forum where it's maybe a paragraph, maybe two of how they should respond to your original prompt, and then please reply to two other students. And so giving them some feedback about what do you want to happen in those replies? Do you want them to extend what the other person did by finding resources that would be helpful for the argument they're making? Is it to probe or clarify when that student's not making enough points to really make it clear what they're trying to say? And so giving them some ideas. And then when we pull in the equity angle on top of human connection, we can say, how does your connection to this and your background and your identity map to what you're experiencing with your student classmate? And so getting them to start interacting with one another at different levels also increases that sense of human connection because they know each other better. A lot of instructors I know, especially in fields maybe like STEM, they're worried about adding things to the class that would take away time from other important activities. And so it's finding those ways to do both I'm a big fan of both and as opposed to either or. So if you're going to have a discussion, then maybe how does this physics concept apply to your background? How is it useful in your life? And so they're still thinking about the physics concept instead of just a, a chance to socialize with your classmates and then moving on from there. I love the way Kevin just covered the one aspect. Another thing we've talked a lot about in terms of this human connection is there's an old phrase that we teach the way we're taught. And it's actually a way to excuse folks for lecturing because like, well, I was lectured too, so I lecture. I don't actually believe you teach the way you were taught. I think that, in fact, I know back when I was an undergraduate, and we're talking about back in the late 70s, early 80s, there were faculty members doing service learning. There was small groups. We did problem-based learning. We had a lot of different things. I loved this one guy who did storytelling lectures. I don't teach the way I was taught. I teach the way I best learned. And that makes a lot of sense because if we really don't stop and take into consideration other people, every one of us has a way we learn. And we think, oh, you know how students will learn best is you do it like this and it's the way you learn. And so what I think the thing is, is we got to break away from this concept of teaching the way we best learned. And by the way, as evidence of this too, you'll have some students who will do phenomenally well in your class. If you sit down and talk to them, they tend to learn just like you did. And that's why the class is going so well for them. So I think for me, what I try to do is to say who in the classroom, no matter how I'm teaching, who in the classroom is struggling right now? And so if I'm teaching something where people raise their hands and just shout an answer quickly, I'm actually teaching to the fast thinking, low concerned extroverts, the people who don't mind making mistakes. 
And if I stop and think for just a second, who is that not benefiting? Well, somebody who needs to take a few more minutes to think, a person who's a little bit more introverted, or an individual who's really self-conscious about making mistakes. So that's part of trying to find that human connection too, of getting away from just assuming everybody out there is like us. As a slow thinker, I really appreciate that. And you know, it's funny, I just want to say is I think that's really, really important because people will make jokes about that all the time. It's like, well, you know, we introverts, they're all learners. And this is one thing I just loved working with Kevin on. He's one of the kindest, most human oriented people I've ever been around. But constantly be thinking if somebody makes a joke to me and says, well, you know, I'm kind of introverted, so I don't know if I'll fit in here. I'll say, well, wait a minute. How can we make that work? And it's not a joke. Let's talk that through because education is by and large built for fast talking, risk taking extroverts. That's just who education had been built for. And online learning actually changes that game which is why some students dislike it and others love it, but they're all humans out there. So we do have some students who are really struggling now with online learning who would be doing much better in the classroom, right along with the people again who are doing much better because we're online. And we should try to design our courses to work for all sets of students. Yeah. There you go. We always end with the question, what's next? Well, I would say Todd described how this book evolved over the course of a couple of years. And during that couple of year period, this thing called the pandemic happened. So obviously there's more that we could be doing. And so I know for myself in conference presentations and workshops that I conduct at colleges and universities, I've been trying to fill in different gaps to help people with immediate needs that we may not have been able to get to to the book. Otherwise, it would have been an encyclopedia. We packed that thing full of ideas. But I think Todd just constructed a website. I'd love to find ways to engage the community around the equity challenges that they're facing and help folks identify what this really looks like in a course. When you talk about learning equity or universal design for learning or human connection, these can seem like abstract concepts. And so when you're saying, but I'm designing an online course, I need something that I can see. So getting examples of that, not just by the ones that Todd and I put in the book, but by others, stories that students tell about things that helped them. Those are the things I think would really bolster this book and make it achievable for people who are busy and just trying to help their students. What do you think, Todd? I think that's great, Kevin. I guess that's, for me, the same type of thing. We've written the book. I think it's an amazing material. Quite frankly, I'm awed of it at the end. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a co-author of the book. It's got so much information packed into it. And so we did set up a website, theexcellentteachersseries.com, because this is part of that series. And it's going to have information on it. So I think what's next is what Kevin was just talking about, just continuing to put tips and different suggestions on this so it can be a living project as opposed to a static book. The book itself kind of launches you. And then we have this living project that people can come back to and contribute with. Thank you. I really enjoyed reading your book and I'll strongly recommend it to our faculty here. And we very much appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your rich information. Appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. And the chance to have some tea. Oh yeah. Gotta love the tea. Tea's very important. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.